1: How about attempted murder? Maybe you've heard the story or seen the video of the 15 kids from a Las Vegas high school beating a 17-year-old kid named Jonathan Lewis Jr. to death. Uh, It happened back on November 1st. Lewis is white. The kids who are beating him appear to be black. It's probably safe to say that if the races were reversed, this, this story would be getting a lot more attention. And this isn't just a beating. It's a stomping they were stomping on his head when he was on the ground. So this time, it's not attempted murder. It's murder. And I, can, I can't I can count the number of, uh, quote, unquote, fights that I've seen, Twitter and other places, um, that have included a guy being down and, in some cases, out, and then people coming up and taking turns kicking him in the head or stomping on his head. And this is a 21st century phenomenon, by the way. People just didn't do this 20 or 25 years ago. Uh, Maybe the mafia would use it as a technique, but high school kids and regular people sure didn't. It's not just dangerous and cowardly. It's unbelievably stupid. I mean, how could anyone not be aware of the possibility that a person could die from that? And with video cameras everywhere, how stupid does someone have to be to believe that he can get away with it? Multiple people should be charged with murdering Jonathan Lewis, doesn't matter how old they are, and they're all there on tape. But maybe it's time to start being realistic when it comes to head stomping. Let's assume that if you're okay with stomping another guy's head into the concrete, you're okay with him ending up dead. As I said, these videos are everywhere. It's a thing now. Stomping on a guy's head is part of fighting, even if he's already unconscious. Maybe it's time for a deterrent that would make stomping on a guy's head a little less fashionable, like attempted murder. People who do it need to go away for a long time. When we come back, abortion has been the number one topic in any political discussion since the election last week, especially since abortion won big in a referendum in Ohio. Jeffrey Anderson, president of the Main Street Initiative, has some ideas for the Republicans on how they should deal with it in 2024. And in our second half hour, college football is big business, and the federal government may be about to blow it up. Stick around. Well, abortion seems to have become the uh, number one issue in politics, and with the economy as bad as it is, and, uh, you know, with what's going on around the world, I guess that's saying something, and it seems to have become a losing issue for Republicans There's a lot of debate about how they should deal with it in 2024. Jeffrey Anderson is president of the Main Street Initiative. He has some suggestions, and he joins us now. Jeffrey, thanks for coming on again. I appreciate it.
2: Hey, John. Thanks for having me.
1: So what have the Republicans been doing wrong?
2: Well, they haven't actually been arguing the pro-life position much at all, I don't think, in the aftermath of Rose being turned over by the Dobbs decision. Um, I live in Virginia, where, of course, we just had the um, the election for the state house and and it was just pro-abortion after pro-abortion ad from democratic candidates um, and then no response whatsoever from republican candidates so you know when you only have one side arguing an issue that's
1: probably going to prevail mm-hmm. well if you believe that abortion is killing a human being uh, no matter when it's performed how can you compromise on that uh, w- without losing the argument or, or, or crushing your credibility?
2: Well, I think that you have to actually be aware that politics is a game of trying to win and advance the ball as best you can. And so one can have a position, can hold a position that, uh, say, as opposed to all abortion, and not necessarily uh, make that position their, their front and center, this is what I'm standing for, a position, I mean, it does get a little bit tricky, but um, I think um, that pro-lifers need to be a lot more like Abraham Lincoln was in arguing on slavery back, uh, you know, a long time ago, over 150 years ago. But these are, I think a lot of pro-lifers recognize there's a lot of similarity, actually, between these issues. Um, They're very divisive. There's not a whole lot of middle ground. They come down to fundamental questions about rights, the right of liberty and slavery uh, against the... um, you know, the false claim of the right of property and in the case of abortion, the right of life against the false claim of a right of liberty. Um, but Lincoln didn't just push for abolishing slavery throughout the United States. He didn't say, I'm going to go abolish slavery in the South. If he had, he never would have gotten anywhere. He wouldn't have won. So he picked things he could win on, namely trying to keep slavery from expanding into the territories. And I think pro-lifers should try to keep abortion from expanding anywhere, and they should, uh, Make the argument like Lincoln did, and and frame the debate in ways that, that can be winning for them um, by focusing on things like uh, the uh, you know the moment where the developing child can feel pain, where the heartbeat begins. Um, at the same time, asking key questions of the other side, like where do you think life begins? Does it begin at birth? Um, that that's the question that the. Pro-abortion folks do not want to have asked of them; they don't want to have to answer that question. Um, So that's that's the key question to ask.
1: Yeah, and I don't. The problem is that nobody seems to want to ask them that in a debate. When you have a a, not just a presidential debate, but on a local level, Uh, we had here in Pittsburgh, we had abortion as an issue in the for the Allegheny County executive uh, election. (laughs) Yeah, that's how far down it's come. It probably goes down. Further into the local um, part of you know i the local faction than that and it's it's so it 's everywhere how do you, you how do you even get them to have to f- uh, face that if they 're not asked the question in a debate they, i don 't think they ever are by the media i 'm talking about
2: well you 're not going to get the media to i mean of course the media is never going to pl- uh, be on the side of conservatives on on anything, so it 's going to take the the pro-life Canada is going to have to actually ask the question and and insist on an answer. When when does life begin? And it can't just be oh, I, I, I don't want to say you know yeah. who, who am I who am I to know? Well, okay, does it begin at birth? Does it begin when the child turns three? At what point does this life deserve protection? I mean, do you believe it's a it's a member of the human race? You know, is it a Homo sapien life? Is mm-hmm. it? Uh, I mean, these are the kinds of the, the life question when does life begin question is the one that is really impossible for the pro-abortion folks to answer um, because scientifically uh, everyone knows, I mean, we can prove that life begins at the moment of conception with the, the newly developed one cell being, being a uh, developing one cell being, being having its own DNA, its own distinct DNA. Right. We can show that scientifically, but um, so that's not a winner for them, but when it becomes a question of just uh, convenience, um, then, you know, that that's a total, totally different matter. But I think the pressure's got to be put on by the, the pro-life candidates. But unfortunately, too many Republicans kind of want to run from the issue, not argue on it. And then they say, well, gosh, we didn't, we didn't win. Well, in order to win an argument, you have to actually be willing to make an argument.
1: Well, has it reached the point where not making an argument might be a good argument? Just, OK, they won this issue. Let's just, you know, we have till next November. We got a year. Let's let's kind of. Let's let's focus on other stuff.
2: Well, if you, don't, you know, if you don't really, if you don't stand for anything on the issue, sure. Yeah. I mean, but for a party that was founded as the anti-slavery party mm-hmm. um, or the anti-expansion of slavery into the West party, um, that would be quite a, a, a uh, quite an admission or quite a failure to follow through. Or I don't think voters tend to reward people who don't seem to believe in anything, and um, and I don't think that's where the public is anyway. I mean, I think the uh, the exit polling from Ohio and also from last year's midterms showed that most Americans are kind of in the middle on abortion, which is a little bit of a, you know, it, it, it's a, it doesn't have a lot of middle ground really, but still that's where most Americans are. They, they don't want abortion to always be legal. They don't want it to always be illegal. They want, most Americans say they want it to be either, most, they want it to be mostly either legal or illegal. So most are actually in the middle and those are, so, so they want restrictions on abortion and those who are in the middle, it's about 60% of voters, they tend to actually favor Republican candidates. In the midterms, Republicans won by 15 points among people who are in the middle on abortion. It's the, the reason Republicans are losing is because there's a lot more people who are vehemently pro-abortion and want no limits than there are people who want an outright ban.
1: Yeah, so that's a tough argument to win. If, if you're vehemently pro-abortion... Do they really care when life begins? I mean, these they are these care, are people but... who are okay with delivering the baby and then. May, uh, who's, what's the guy in Virginia, the former governor of Virginia, Ralph uh, Northam? Yeah, he's he's okay with delivering the baby and making it comfortable before you let it die. <laughs> he's actually <laughs> yeah, on record it. as saying that.
2: Well, uh, really, the arguments that they make, I mean, do sort of naturally extend to infanticide. That if you know if a mother doesn't want to deal with a child, at, it, it you know. Eight months and twenty nine days, or whatever. Yeah. They what, what if you don't want to deal with a three year old who's misbehaving? I mean, right. at, at some point, when does at some point there's got to be protection for this life? And yeah, I mean, people who are vehemently pro abortion, they don't want to, they don't particularly care about that answer. The question of where does life begin? That's a question they are they are, uh, you know, studiously avoiding even asking themselves. And so it's all the more reason why they need to have it asked of them because they won't really have an answer.
1: Yeah, what about the fifteen weeks? That seems to be the um, the, the the position where a, a lot of Republicans seem to be getting ready to settle.
2: Yeah, I don't. To me, the fifteen weeks thing, for for starters, I don't understand how almost overnight we got to talking about weeks. Um, I don't think that necessarily is uh, the frame of the way of thinking about it, the benefits the pro life cause. Fifteen weeks is in the second trimester. And across the decades, we would have spoken of that as this is a second trimester abortion. Do we want to allow second trimester abortions? I think that's much more of a winning formulation rhetorically than talking about a number that people don't really attach to much of anything. So to me, the pro-life uh, movement has kind of gotten itself in a bad spot here where they're pushing for a number that is kind of a losing number. All right, we're going to grant, we're going to allow 90 percent of abortions to happen. And we're just going to stop um, most second trimester abortions. It's not a, not a big win for the pro life side. And yet they have to extend a fair amount of political, expend a lot of political capital to make that argument. So if you're going to, it's kind of a, it, it's a both too much and too little. I think they ought to focus a lot more on making the case for, all right, should we be able to kill a developing child in the womb who can feel pain? Can we, should we be able to do so once the developing child has a heartbeat? These sorts of, of um, milestones, I think, are a lot better to emphasize than a number sort of dis- disassociated with any uh, from any rationale for it.
1: And actually, if if you believe that whenever you decide to abort a, um, a baby, that it's killing a human being, there isn't any week, there isn't any day. There's nothing you can put it. On. I mean, if 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 it's 15 weeks that we settle on. And uh, I, my, uh, a woman is pregnant, and uh, Friday, this Friday would mark 14 weeks. Can I make an appointment for next Thursday, uh, or do I have to wait till Friday? Would the, is it the baby going to be a little better off if I wait till Friday instead of killing it on Thursday? If you believe that, none of this stuff should anybody with a brain should have no patience with any of it. You have to no. accept. You can't. You can't believe that you're killing a human being and then make any one of those arguments no no i i agree um i think
2: so i i think at the same time, you have to pro-lifers have to recognize where the the citizenry is there's been there's been a half century of uh of living under you know pretty free, free and open access to abortion thanks to activist judges on the supreme court right and so um you know, that's what people have sort of gotten used to. And I think that the, the pro-life movement has made a tremendous amount of, has made a lot of strides by, in part from um, the development of technology. Like when you can see the ultrasounds, you can see how human, so obviously, undeniably human, these, uh, you know, the developing child is in the womb at very early stages. All of that works to the advantage of people who are trying to protect this innocent, unborn life. Um, but, uh... they do have to also recognize that the american public very clearly for the polling, does not want an outright ban on abortion they don't want something that's close to that and people who push for that are going to lose and hence they're going to lose um, i mean all those losses are at the expense of the of the unborn mm-hmm. and so again i think that the example of lincoln is informative he didn't lincoln called slavery a uh... Um, uh a vast moral injustice um and yet he uh um he said slavery is wrong and no one has a right to do a wrong and yet he did not go after slavery everywhere he could have he didn't go after in the south until we were in the middle of the civil war Mm -hmm. um and that's because you know it does require some political savvy some political prudence or else you just end up losing the whole issue for your side
1: we're talking to jeffrey anderson he's president of the main street initiative about abortion and politics, okay, so I'm going to give you my idea here, Jeffrey. There's okay. a couple of them. This is what I, I can't believe the Republicans don't do this. i I have right here on my phone I can I'll send it to you when the sh- when we're finished with the show here. There are videos out there. They're animations of what happens in an abortion. You, maybe you've seen them, and they uh, have you seen those?
2: I don't think I've seen the animation. Oh,
1: okay, yeah. And they're, and they're narrated by a former abortion doctor. And it shows very explicitly what happens in an abortion. Animated, okay? And it shows mm-hmm. the arms being torn off, the legs being torn off, the head being crushed. And in the case of a first trimester, it's the baby being sucked out of the womb into a little syringe. Um, I have uh, Two things. If I were doing an ad there was a there was a video of women celebrating in ohio okay when they when they won the referendum mm-hmm. here's my ad for the Republicans. It was a great day for uh Democrats in Ohio and you show the women cheering wildly uh they they won on their abortion argument and then up in the little, up in the right hand corner uh there would be a little uh speck that would then uh be you would pan out and it would, you would show the video of the arms and legs being ripped off, and you would say, but it wasn't a good day for babies in Ohio. They, they, don't, they don't show this. And the other thing is, why I, I, I think Republicans need to start asking school boards and school principals, superintendents, if that video is appropriate to show kids in school. Because, I don't know if you know it or not, but the, that Ohio referendum, People eighteen to twenty nine voted eighty one to nineteen yes on the on the uh, on that question eighty one to nineteen. Have they ever seen this video that I'm talking about? Do you think in a school? And how could it no, not be appropriate sure for a health class?
2: No, I'm sure they have not seen such a video. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it is a gruesome practice. It's killing. It's uh, you know, it's killing nascent human life. Um,
1: you know, yeah, the, but the, why the reluctance to show it?
2: Well, I think some of it's I mean, Republicans don't really like to mix it up, right, in the culture war. So that's, that's part of it. Um, I'm sure to some extent they don't necessarily want to have, uh, um, you know, there's a bit of a balancing act, I suppose. I mean, I'm, sure, I'm sure they're a little bit shy about putting an ad out there that shows the gruesomeness because they don't want people turning the channel or being afraid to have their kids see it. But, you know, at some point if you're going to fight – A gruesome, barbaric barbaric practice. You have to actually be willing to call it what it is, show it for what it is, or, um, or if people can just sort of pretend it's this benign thing, then it, then then those who are just at, at, you know, making the argument in favor of uh, of convenience um, are going to win.
1: Well, but I guess my question is, how much, how much, uh, how aware are high school kids, especially high school and middle school girls, how aware are they of what an abortion looks like? And if if you're teaching them, uh, and, and now they're teaching them various sex acts that you know they can they can learn about in school in the health class, but they can't show them a video of an abortion. I don't mean a, a real video. I mean this animation.
2: Right. Well, it would certainly be informative and educational for them, and it would it would probably have them uh, have them end up with a lot different perspective on it. I mean, I think I think most children probably have a. An, a relatively innate sense that this is a, a, a horrifying notion of killing an unborn child in the womb, who's who's developing in the womb. But then they get sort of talked out of it, or yeah. Um, well, you
1: know, they if they saw the if they saw the arms and legs being torn off, they'd get a they might have a little different impression of it. I just yeah I just I don't think, think, think the Republicans right. <laughs> are tough enough on it, and you know that's just me. But uh, but uh, you're right. Uh, your piece at the Federalist, people can check it out the Federalist dot com. You make the good argument that they, they're just not going about it the right way. I hope they listen to you.
2: Well, thank you, John. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. They're, they're, they're not very tough on it, and they're going to have to be tougher and be willing to actually fight for the unborn. I mean, it's a, it's a noble cause, but you've got to actually fight with your heart in it to win.
1: Well, I'll send you these videos. You can check them out for yourself. I appreciate you coming on, Jeffrey, as always. Thank you. Thank you, John. Okay, that's Jeffrey Anderson of the Main Street Initiative. I'll be right back. Well, Texas A&M fired its football coach, uh, Jimbo Fisher, yesterday. Uh, Jimbo will be paid $76 million uh, for not coaching. And if he signs with another school, he can still collect the $75 million. College football is a big business. For a long time, it wasn't treated like one. That's changed. Uh, Jesse Doherty covers the business of college sports for the Washington Post. He joins us now. Jesse, thanks for coming on the show. Of course. Thanks for having me. So um, the president of the United States is involved in this now. Uh, who was at the White House meeting last week, and why were they there?
3: Yes, yeah, so there was a uh, small roundtable at the White House. Uh, that included Joe Biden, uh, Andrew Luck, Desmond Howard, um, so some others uh, in the mix as well. That, that was about not just safety in college sports and, and healthcare care standards, although that was maybe the main thrust of the meeting, but also about potential revenue sharing, um, some talk about name, image, and likeness, NIL, uh, and and we wrote about it last week as sort of the latest, uh, albeit small checkmark, you know, checkpoint. But the latest checkpoint in this becoming all these issues becoming more of a mainstream discussion, not just within the world of college sports, but also in DC. And uh, yeah, it's it's just it's part of the zeitgeist right now that um, a lot of these a lot of these topics that, as you mentioned just now, maybe weren't you know being thrown around five, ten years ago, even three years ago, or. Um, it's it's really an overdrive right now, and then there's and there's so much talk about a lot of different directions that the college sports world could go in in terms of being totally reshaped in the years ahead.
1: It's interesting that um, just after this meeting and after your story in the in the Washington Post, which I saw I think Friday, um, <laughs> the, the Texas A and M fires a coach, and first of all they they signed him to a contract that allows him to be paid seventy six million dollars for not coaching, and From what I I heard is, as I mentioned in the beginning here, even if he gets another job, he still can collect the seventy-five or seventy-six million, whatever it is, and then get paid another who knows how much from somebody else because somebody else is going to hire him.
3: Right. Yeah, I mean the uh, the buyouts a pretty shocking number. I mean to think about the money you get paid to not code, and the reasons why those buyouts are in contracts in this place are are certainly not as a breaking you know, breaking case emergency measure. They're way more just trying to entice uh, these coaches to sign on and, and get these mega deals because, you know, when you, when you sign someone eight years, we'll kind of make it through eight-year contracts. Right. Uh, so it's, you know, the, the just the economics of these contracts. And, and, again, it's worth noting that Texas A&M is not necessarily um, analogous to the rest of the college landscape because there's so much oil money in, in College Station and the money they throw around is not the same maybe as – even a smaller power five school or or a midsize power five school. but It just does show on, on, on the, on the biggest scale. And, and at the farthest end of of the scale, but there is a ton of money in this. And and when you talk about being able to employ athletes or potentially pay minimum wage or, or, or revenue share, some of the massive television deals, um, I mean, this buyout will certainly be used as a data point. Whether or not that's totally fair or whether or not it totally fits the discussion, you better believe that people on that side of the argument that want to get more rights for college athletes, want to get more money, standardized pay for college athletes in the future, they are certainly going to use the female situation in their arguments for years to come.
1: Yeah, and I, I wonder if the, the uh, athletic director who signed him to that contract keeps his job. That, that's uh, – <laughs> I don't know. I didn't hear any stories about the athletic director. I don't right. know what happened there. Um, but the NCAA is looking at some expensive lawsuits. Uh, you write in your piece, uh, NCAA wants an antitrust exemption. Um, what are the chances of that happening?
3: Uh, not very good. I mean, that's you know, there's, we're we're ten Senate hearings now into um, this sort of discussion on Capitol Hill about future college sports, NIL, antitrust exemptions, all these things. And so far, there's only been drafts of bills and nothing passed. That so um, at this point, I mean, that's. I've seen some other writers, and I think this this is this, this, it's, it's sort of akin to having to throw a last-second hail mary to try and get these antitrust exemptions. Because the reason why they want them is because they're getting sued in all different directions, where in, and they're getting um, labor charges brought against them in all different directions uh, for things that could establish that athletes are employees. That that there's there's not actually restrictions on NIL payments like there are now. All these different things that could really change the entire college sports world, the entire function of the NCA as we know it and what the NCA needs more than anything from its from its view is an i trust exemption to sort of shield itself from not just the current litigation it's facing but from this happening in the future because until this stuff gets sorted out and until the standards change um they're going to just keep getting pelted with these lawsuits and these and these charges and and these unfair labor charges and all these things and, and we're seeing a a just sort of a, a crushing it right now and it certainly has the potential to reshape things. Uh, so obviously from the other side you say, well, instead of hiding from it or trying to sort of hide behind an antitrust exemption, uh, why not change the rules and why not why not show yourself from future litigation by reshaping the system um, that's you know commiserate with the law and, and, and commiserate with antitrust law. So that's certainly um, the discussion, but uh that, that, that push for it, antitrust exemption is certainly ongoing. It's um, I don't necessarily know if it's feasible at the moment but they're not going to stop trying until um until it really it's you know is dead in the water
1: yeah I, I just wonder if the um uh i remember by the way a, a, a guy who is an attorney uh, was a big-time attorney and also a former major sports team owner when the obannon lawsuit uh, came down i don't know how long ago that was now versus the ncaa and this has been years that I since he. It's been a long time since he sent this to me, but he sent me a text or something. He says, "This is the end of college sports as you know it." And that's been years since he said it, but it's looking like he's right. That's what it. That's where it began, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think you know the Ed O'Bannon case and then the Austin case that followed it up. Like, I, I think one thing that's worth noting is is the NCAA's defense for years, and I've I've had people say this to me, and analysts mention this. It, their defense has always been this will ruin the NCA. This will ruin yeah. the model. So this what? will crush the NCA. Yeah. And it is 2023. And there are a lot of current litigation that, you know, could have great effects on the system, but the NCA is still here yeah. and sports still <clears throat> exists. So I do think to an extent, the, the feeling of lawmakers and the feeling of, of judges um, is, is probably influenced by the fact that they've been hearing that these things would kill the NCA for more than a decade now. And, While I'm sure there are aspects that change the system that could feel really dire to certain people within it or could feel like really insurmountable change, but the reality is that it still exists now. Are these current crop of of lawsuits that we wrote about in the Post, do they have the the ability to change it even more? Of course. And could that change the model or could that change the system or could that change the function of the NCA as we know it? Absolutely. But I do think that sort of the fatalistic language of this will end it this is the end. This is the death of all those things. Probably, um, don't it doesn't, it doesn't help the NCAA's case. But that's been their defense for a while now. Yeah, and, and and sports are still, you know, sports are still here.
1: Yeah. Well, why should the um, why should the NFL have a, an antitrust exemption or Major League Baseball, and not the NCAA? It's um, a
3: good question. Uh, you know, I, I'm not. Super well versed in trust law to the point of maybe yeah. being able to engage.
1: Right, I, I get but, you. It's complicated, but it's yeah. a good.
3: It's definitely a good bar side discussion, right? I mean, uh, and then you could probably flip it too and ask why does baseball get to have one, right? Or why yeah. does NFL get to have one? Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I know those things are really long and and the NCA has wanted it for a long time, but uh, it's interesting questions and like, and what's treated like a business versus what's treated like something with like an educational mission. Um, All these different thorny questions are are obviously going to dictate the future here in in both Washington and and, and courts beyond that. I mean, a lot of it's happening in California, too, where there's a lot of consequential decisions being made. So we will see.
1: We're talking to Jesse Daugherty. He covers the uh, business of college sports for The Washington Post. I've never understood why. I guess I understand it, but it's pretty obvious that it's something that's rarely spoken about. I I think the – I don't know if it's uh, the media or – too much in love with the NFL or what it is, sports media. But um, you know, a, a good bit of the problem in college football comes from the NFL not allowing kids to enter the their league until their high school uh, since, since until their high school class has been graduated for three years. So um, they have nowhere else to go to be a professional football player other than college. Yeah, and how, I mean, yeah, I, don't know, I don't know how long can they get away with that? That's I know. I, I you're not a antitrust lawyer, but it just seems strange to me.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think one thing I would say is there's there's probably a safety element to that too. I mean, I think at least in all specifically, I, I you know I. Yeah. Uh, obviously, obviously, there's a chance that an 18-year-old or 19-year-old gets gets hurt with elbow by LeBron James, but I I probably would take that over an 18-year-old quarterback being chased down by Aaron Donald.
1: Uh, <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. Well, they also, <laughs> you know, they they um they play baseball, and they play hockey. You yeah. can You can you can right. play hockey without having to you know show anybody that you ever went to a college class. Right. Yeah. That's pretty dangerous. Um,
3: no, for sure. And I, yeah, I mean, I think that. I, you know, I think that's that's an interesting question, and like, and the sort of the sort of rules in place that, um, you know, like that, that sort of feel like they go against sort of the general, um, you know, the, the general way in which business operates in, in this country. Like, you know, for example, like a, a a big argument for for name, image, and likeness going into effect was that you know before July first, two thousand twenty one, when students could start earning money on their NIL, uh, two if, if two people got on campus and one was an athlete and one wasn't. One could start a foundation and make money off it, and the other couldn't. Mm-hmm. Or one could start promoting their social media and selling products, and the other couldn't. Right. And the physics major could make money, and the football player could not. Mm-hmm. So now we're asking, like you said, why, why could a potentially an 18-year-old go and work in a lab right away, but an 18 football player couldn't go to the NFL? Um, if, if these businesses or these organizations don't function like general business, then I think those are questions worth asking, for sure.
1: And, by, and NHL teams, are, or I'm sorry, uh, major college hockey programs are full Full. The rosters are full of players who signed with pro teams already, were drafted or at least drafted by NHL teams. And they go right back to college and play for a couple more years and then come out and sign with the team. So there, it's, it's yeah, being right. done. And there's no reason why they, they couldn't do that with the NFL. So um, could colleges stop offering scholarships? Uh, here, here's my Here's my idea. I'm going to run it by you. Okay. Yep. Uh, I can't. I'm not allowed to. I got to. I got to treat these players as employees, uh, because the you know the courts tell me I have to, and I have to pay them. So mm-hmm. why not eliminate the scholarship idea? So if you are a football player and you want to go to Notre Dame, we'll pay you. Uh, we'll pay you seventy five thousand, hundred thousand bucks a year if you're a good player. But if you want to go to school here, you have to pay tuition like everybody else. And uh, and you have to you have to be admitted because uh, you have to be qualified to be admitted like everybody else. And so here's your money, but you you know if you want to be play for a college football team, you have to be a college student. You're gonna to have to enroll in classes. Yeah, I think
3: I think one thing that's worth remembering with this is that it, for a certain caliber of player, right, right, there is there's 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 a demand for their service. So. Right. If you think, okay, I'm a Notre Dame level recruit, right? Well, that also probably means that Florida State wants me. Probably also means that sure. Clemson wants me. It probably yeah, also means yeah. that Georgia wants me, et cetera, et cetera. So, I think what you would see is if we're truly, if it's truly like a, a free market where teams can set their own salaries and teams can do that, like I can't imagine a player who has that much competition, who has ten, ten top ten schools wanting them, is is going to take a salary that doesn't have. Enough money baked in that let's say in that in that hypothetical right, scholarship right. model goes away they're going to say, well, I need mean, you know as a baseline, it has to start at eighty grand or whatever the school costs forty grand because that's my scholarship money, and then on top of that you have to be a hundred more you know so i think yeah I think the competition is whats gonna oh, yeah. set the market it's a free like, that's, market that's what NIL yeah. does too yeah so if it's, a, if it's a true free market the, the, the sort of the i think mean, the scholarship question is interesting, but I do think that you you just see where. You know, people who would price out with their paper to pay for the school are going to make sure that that's baked into the money they right. get anyway.
1: Yeah, but and that, then they get
3: they get you know a salary on top of that.
1: That's talking about the top level guys, um, right? You know, that's that doesn't that, that doesn't the, the people that think they should be paid fifty thousand bucks a year because they're um, you know they're just a, a good Division One prospect. and I deserve to be paid because look at all the money you're making on TV. I, you know, I should get fifty thousand bucks. Um, you're always going to have the top guys getting tons of money but the other guys you got you want to be a college student you pay to go here that's how it works and uh you know i uh, it it's, it just seems to me uh jesse that it becomes it's 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 already less and less about college than it used to be and right. what you all the stuff that you're talking about here uh and the stuff that's going on and especially if the NCAA loses which it looks like they will it's it's college has little or nothing to do with the, with the type of player that you mentioned who's going to have, you know, multiple schools throwing money at him yeah. College has nothing to do with it.
3: Right. Yeah, and then to use the first example, too, like Texas A&M is going to spend $76 million to pay a guy who's not going to coach for them. Like, right. college doesn't matter a lot to them either, right? No, no. So it's like if it was a, and on both the administration side and maybe the football recruit side, what they're actually using that educational institution for is not necessarily what they may be what we think of, we think of college or higher education, you know, and that goes from both the administrative side, the coaching staff. Um, right. it's, it's an interesting discussion for sure.
1: Would major college football survive if being a college student had nothing to do with being a college football player? <laughs> In other words, just, question. Hey, what, you know, we're, uh, we're Florida state. Come on down and play football. I don't care if you go to class or not. Here's some money to play football.
3: Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Cause, cause then maybe I mean, you know, that's, I think a lot of guys would take that, and then, you know, obviously a certain percentage of them, that, that's a fine arrangement because if they make the NFL, that they got what they needed, but then for the other ones that, you know, actually have a, a life after football or college <laughs> yeah. football that need to actually join the workforce or become coaches or whatever it may be, um, it, 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 that's not as good of an arrangement, right? For the yeah. guys who are fast-tracked to the NFL, I mean, it's probably not different than what their experience is right now anyway. Right. Uh, but, but, but that's only a certain percentage of the player for sure.
1: Hey, Jesse, I appreciate you coming on. Great piece. Uh, people can find it at WashingtonPost.com. Jesse Dougherty, uh, the business of college sports at the Washington Post. Thanks, man. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Okay. And we'll be right back. Well, as I said uh, to Jeffrey Anderson there, uh, just following up on that, I, I, I just don't think the Republicans are tough enough on this. And I don't understand the squeamishness um, of – Having to look at what an abortion actually looks like, and again, this, these are animations, and I've talked about them here before. I've put them up on Twitter at Stiger World. You can see them there. Um, they are—it's gruesome, but it's—it's it's not. It's obviously not as bad as it would look if they showed you the actual act of aborting a baby. But it—it it gets the point across pretty well, and I don't understand why it's not if it's I'd love if somebody could contact me and let me know I would love to find out if it is being done in a school somewhere and um and if you are if you have kids in school maybe uh it would be a good idea to call the school up call the 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 school up and ask if uh if this would be something that could be shown in health class I I just don't I don't think it's um it's, it's just not that outrageous Kids see much worse than that on their own online. They can find anything they want on there. Much more gruesome than this stuff. But as I told Jeffrey, in Ohio, people 18 to 29 voted 81 to 19 in favor of that, um, uh, of that, uh, said they said yes on the referendum to allow abortion to be part of the Ohio Constitution. And... I, I would love to ask some of those people who voted yes those at, at that in that age group. Have you ever seen what one actually looks like? Uh, because I, my guess would be about ninety eight percent of them would say no, they haven't. And if you're if you're not going to show it to them, then it becomes a debate about the right of a woman to choose and all the stuff that they hear ad nauseum during, especially during a, in a political season during a campaign. Uh, the right to a, a woman has a right to her own body and blah, 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 it all sounds great. But it, it all, I don't know for me anyway, when I see this video, it looks a lot different and it sounds a lot different. And it just sounds dumb to say that, it, to talk about it as though it's only one person's body. When you see the little body with the arms and the legs being ripped off, uh, and this is in a, this is in the first and second trimester. And then, uh, there's one other thing here. I, I really don't. Have, I don't know if I have enough time for it, but uh, a guy named uh, Wilford Riley. Uh, he is a. He's been a guest on this show. He's a political science professor at Kentucky State, and I'll just I'll just throw this out and leave it with you. This is Wilford Riley. His comment: There is nothing at all, at all unusual about this take. He's talking about another tweet. I. This is a take from someone else on Twitter. I would prefer that no one die, but given that there is a war on, I would prefer the enemy take collateral damage, including children, than that my children be at risk down road. The idea that the lives of all people, including yourself, your wife, and your worst enemy should have equal value to you is bat poop insane. That's what Wilford Riley says. And this guy who he was quoting on the tweet, I go by my very basic human law of nature, My children are prior to the children of the enemy, period. They are first. My children are first. We are talking about children. I don't know if the law of nature is what we need to be looking at here, but I say my children are first. That's an interesting argument I'd like to see taken up. Maybe we'll do that tomorrow. Talk to you then